As we go through uh, our service today, um, we're going to be doing something a, a little bit different. We've done this a couple of times in the past. Uh, so if you've been with us for uh, a year or so, uh, you may have um, gone through a sermon like this. We're, we're just going to look at Scripture. Uh, we've done this with Easter before, kind of looking at the prophecies of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to be doing something similar here um, in our passage this morning. Um, but before we get into that, we're going to kind of get into the, the context of what's happening uh, in this moment uh, and, and then go from there. So uh, it'll be in John 18, starting in verse 1. And before we go there, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you and Lord, we thank you for this morning and this day. Uh, the opportunity to be able to gather as your church, uh, to praise your name, uh, to just declare simply and truly uh, all of you is more than enough for all of me. Uh, for our every thirst, our every want, our every need, uh, you're more than enough. Uh, and so, Lord, we come here declaring that, seeking that, thirsting for that, and praying that your spirit moves that within us here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so beginning in verse 1, it says, After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, uh, and he and his disciples uh, went into it. And actually, just, just here, uh, because I think there's a, a really cool um, thing that happens with this passage and that we'll, we'll kind of read through it and, and we miss kind of the, the dynamic meaning behind this. Um, and especially since we have some kids in the audience today, um, I'm hoping that some of them are willing to volunteer. So if you're a kid and you want to help me with an illustration, come on up. Okay, my daughter's kind of thinking, a little embarrassed. All right, so we got one, we got two, a few more would be nice. Anybody? Okay, how about some adults then? Because <laughs> I need a little bit of a group for this one. So, anybody? All right, thank you very much. All right, I think this will be kind of enough. So, um, we're over here. We're going to be, um, I'm going to play the part of Judas because I don't want anybody else to really have to play the part of Judas. Okay. But you're going to be kind of the soldiers that are, that are with me. Okay. And, and then you're going to be representing Jesus. Um, and, and there would be a crowd with you as well. But this is the, kind of the setting. They've walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and there's a garden and him and his disciples went into it. Judas, who also betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So they're coming after Jesus kind of as a mob at this point. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to them, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? And then verse 5 says, Jesus of Nazareth. Are you going to help us out? Awesome. So Jesus of Nazareth. He answered, um, I am he, Jesus told them. Jesus who betrayed him was also standing with them. Uh, and so when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and then fell to the ground. And, and this is like what's really incredible to me. So, so now here's Jesus, and, and his whole intention is like, I'm going to the garden to pray. Like, I'm with my disciples. The, the whole purpose for me being on this earth is, is to rescue everybody, right? And, and so he's going to pray as he's heading into this, this intense part of his life. And, and so then we, over here we have this whole crowd, and we've got torches, 
right, and pitchforks, and we're like, ah! You know that whole scene from Beauty and the Beast? You know, where they're like, kill the beast! Like, that's what, like, goes through my head. You guys know that scene, right? All right, so that's kind of what we're doing, and we're walking up, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And then we fall down. It's all good. <laughs> all right, thank you. Good job. Stop it. And thank you, sir. Now, obviously, you know, there, there's some humor and cuteness and, and funniness to this. But I, I just love this passage. Right? Like, like here they're all coming with, with swords and they're almost ready for a fight. And, and Jesus just says, well, who are you looking for? Knowing who they're looking for. Who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. I'm the one. And, and as he declares that, there's, there's such power and, and truth in that statement that I am he. I am, I am the one that the natural couldn't stand up to it. Like, that's the only explanation that I have. It's, it's not like Jesus is sitting there and all of a sudden, like, throws a sariukin at them. And it's a video game term. Some of you will get it. Um, and they all fall down. But he's just simply speaking. The, the, the voice that spoke all things into existence, the voice that said, let there be light, and the sun was in the sky with the stars. The, the voice said that, all right, man, let's breathe, like let's make you, says to them, I am he. And, and in that moment, there's just such power in that truth that they can't stand in front of it. And they fall back to the ground. And then verse 7, he asks them again, who is it that you're seeking? He's like, all right, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to kind of do a do-over on this. Like, like, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the words that he had said, I've not lost one of those that you have given to me. Uh, and so this kind of begins the passion of the Christ. Because at this point then, he's arrested by that temple guard. He's, he's dragged off um, to the Sanhedrin, and, which is the religious court for the Jews at that time. From there to Pilate. Uh, and all of that, each one of these uh, being a step towards uh, his death. And, and what I really find interesting here, and we'll get into this a, a little bit more next week when we look at, at Jesus' declaration of, of him being a king. When uh, Pilate's asking him that. But what here really strikes to me is his whole composure. Like, like he's just sitting there and we're looking for Jesus. And there isn't like this, oh, where'd he go? Kind of thing. Well, obviously, like, Judas is right there. But, but he doesn't even acknowledge the betrayal of Judas in that point. He's not sitting there saying, you Judas! Which actually is like where the term started from, so probably wouldn't have said it at that point. But... None of that. He's just saying, I am he. Why is he doing that? I, I, would any of us in that same position necessarily have that same attitude? Would, would we have intentionally gone there knowing that our betrayer was on the way? And, and yet what strikes me in this is in verse 4. Then Jesus, 
knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Knowing everything that was about to happen to him, said, who are you seeking? That's me. All right, let's go. Let's do this. He knew what would take place. And he still had this composure because he had this sense of purpose. Knowing God's rescue plan in this, knowing the things that had to take place, uh, gave him a peace and a purpose to face the situation that was about to come. And so what we're going to take a look at is this whole idea of, of him knowing everything that was about to happen and willingly walking towards it. We're going to take a look at verses within the Old Testament, New Testament, and, and just go through a bunch of things that look at how he knew what was going to happen. And yet, what that means that he made that choice to, to still head that direction. Uh, so beginning looking at the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, and by no means is this a comprehensive list, um, but, but an example of what he knew he was going to face. Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, now daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. And so here they're talking about a situation that, that Israel was in at that moment. But it's also this foreshadowing to Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew chapter 27, it describes how they spat on him. They took the staff and kept hitting Jesus on the head with a rod. When they put the crown of thorns on his head and forced it down farther, doing it with a rod. Isaiah chapter 52 says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. And it's talking about the coming of the Messiah that, that's going to be raised and, and lifted up and, and greatly exalted. Do you remember what one of the events that took place uh, just the week before that he was betrayed and heads to the cross? The triumphant entry into Jerusalem. As he's walking from his friend's Lazarus house and begins to ride a donkey, which is a declaration of his kingship. And all of these people are crowding around him with palm branches, laying their, their cloaks down at the ground, fulfilling prophecy about a king returning to Jerusalem. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Lifting him up. But then it also talks about appearance being so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And we look through the gospel accounts and we see uh, aspects of Jesus being blindfolded, uh, beaten, whipped, dressed in purple with crown of thorns, beaten, spit on, like all of these things, and then caused to stand before the whole crowd. Certainly not looking in anything of dignity. Maybe not even recognizable unless you knew that it was him. Fulfilled in Scripture, prophesied in Isaiah. Zechariah chapter 12 says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. They will look at me whom they pierce. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. This is the prophecy. Come to John chapter 19. 
When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this testified that you may also believe. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling these truths. So these things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says, they will look at the one that they pierced. And so this aspect of, of him being pierced is fully prophesied within Scripture. Even the fact that people would be sitting there and mourning uh, as for a child, mourning as for a firstborn. And we have Mary there as her son is on the cross. Like all of that prophesied, all of that happening, and Jesus knowing all of this inspiring the Old Testament to be written this way. This is the plan. So it's not like Jesus is just sitting there with this vague sense of, of notion that he's being betrayed and he's going to go die. But, but the details of his death have been written hundreds of years before he ever walked the earth. And him fully knowing this is going to be physical pain. This is going to be mockery. This is going to be them trying to shame me. This is going to be difficult. Rods, piercing. I don't want to get into too passion of the Christ detail here with all the kids in the room, but if you've seen that movie, you kind of get a sense of what he may have went through. And so it just strikes me what it says, knowing all of this, he willingly says, I'm Jesus Christ. And then he willingly says, I'm going with you. Like, let these other go. There's not going to be a problem. I'm going with you. Brings to mind Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Would any of us choose to go through something like that? I don't know. I, I think it would be a really hard choice to, to, to be able to do that. And, you know, even if you start thinking about, you know, in our own lives and the people that we love, would we willingly do that? And, and I think that there's parts of us that are like, yeah. You know, in, in my protection for my, my child and my, my love for my family, like I'd be willing to do this. But what's remarkable to me in this is that uh, in Ephesians it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and so, in other words, when we were still rebels, Christ died for us. Like salvation hadn't happened. The, the path for Full forgiveness of sins had not been paved by Jesus on the cross yet. And, and essentially what he's doing here is saying humankind is separated from me for an eternity because of sin at this point and death. And the only way that there can be a restoration, a reconciliation between God and man is to go through this. And Jesus is saying despite that rebellion, despite that rejection, my love for them is so great. The, the joy that I'm going to have over this reconciliation that's about to happen even knowing every little detail of what's going to happen I go into this with joy because of what it means and what it will accomplish 
knowing that death would be defeated. There's more prophecies within Scripture. Um, Psalm chapter 16. Uh, this is after Jesus' death in verse 10. It says, you will not abandon me to Sheol and you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. This is referring to the multiple accounts of Jesus being resurrected after three days. After his death broke and defeated sin and death. And that through this resurrection was this pathway to us being uh, spiritually resurrected. Into being adopted through the repentance of our sins. It shows the victory of death prophesied in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. It's talking about the resurrection and death not being permanent. 1 Corinthians 15 says, when this with this corruptible body uh, is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your sting? Where is your victory? And so it's talking about like this body that we have right now as we're sitting here in this room with all of our aches and pains or imperfections or illnesses or sicknesses or whatever else it is. Like, like it is temporary. It is corruptible. It is uh, an earthly tent, Paul describes in one of his letters. That will be transformed into something where we are clothed with immortality. And in that, death wears victory. Death wears sting. I, I think this is one of those great things that, uh, unless we try to meditate on what it means, we can pass over it. Because it's really easy every day to like get up out of bed and be like, oh, I'm stiff. Some of us a little bit more today. We, we had our first faith and fitness workout yesterday. Um, down here at the river, we had 14 people show up. And, and talking to everybody, we're all kind of like, ow. <laughs> but it was good. Right? But we also have these other aches and pains that we just kind of associate with life. The, the seasonal flu that comes around. Part of life. Death and losing loved ones part of life, whether it's through old age or illness or sudden tragedy, like all of these things, like we just have kind of accepted and move on as part of life. And what he's saying here is that this is all corruptible life and that this immortal life is coming where we will have this resurrection body. And at that point, what is death? How does that joke go? Like, what are some of the constants in the world? Death, death and taxes, right? What if there's neither? It's a cool idea. Like, like yes, awesome. And we long for the day when we see death being defeated. But right now, it kind of feels sometimes that maybe it defeats us. But Jesus did it on the cross, and it's already accomplished, even though it feels like it defeats us. We have to acknowledge it's already defeated at the cross through Jesus Christ's resurrection. We're just going to get the, the absolute fullness of, of revelation, a realization of what was accomplished when we no longer have this body, when we're no longer dealing with the mess of this world, is what this verse is saying that was prophesied in Daniel. Again, Jesus knew what was going to happen. 
knowing that death would be defeated, gave him peace and purpose in order to face everything that he knew that was about to happen. The lesson that we can take from that is that it can be the same thing for us today. Again, Jesus, for the joy set before him, willingly endured the cross and the shame that was attached to that because he knew what it would accomplish. The reconciliation of mankind to him, the forgiveness of sins, the, the adoption of sons and daughters into his kingdom, and all of that gave him that peace and purpose to, to walk through difficult circumstances, and it's because he knew what was coming. We can do the exact same thing with the scripture that we have. We have more verses and things to look at here. The reconciliation takes place uh, in Romans 5. Uh, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, are we saved by his life? And not only that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. We have to hold on to verses like this as we go through our life. This aspect that, that God's love is so great for us that, that regardless of how much of a mess we are, him knowing everything that was going to happen to him, willingly walked into it to rescue us from that mess. Not saying, oh, that's too much for me. Oh, I can't handle this. Or, oh, they're too messed up. But rather, I'm willingly walking into being pierced, being whipped, being bitten, beaten, not bitten, beaten, in order to, to bring about this reconciliation. And then through that, we're declared righteous by his blood. We rejoice in God whom we have now received this reconciliation. If we really grasp this in our life, how would we look at ourselves? How would we view our, our identities that, that he, I'm righteous because of his blood? I can rejoice now because I'm reconciled with him. Regardless of what circumstances may come, this is the truth declared in Scripture by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, by the Word of Christ, and, and the same peace and purpose that Jesus had facing any situation can be ours if we hold on to this. John chapter 1 uh, says that Jesus was in the world. The world was created through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Those are born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. What this verse is saying that if we've received Christ as Lord, if we fully submitted our life to him, declared him as, as Lord and, and trusted him for our salvation, he gives us the right to be children of God. Not acolytes, not servants, not slaves. In fact, he says, I no longer call you slaves, now I call you friends. Because I've made known to you what's, a, what's happening. 
And so this adoption is sons and daughters of God. And again, it's, it's not through bloodline. It's not through our actions. It's not through our desires or us being able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But, but simply because of God. The supernatural aspect in John, when we looked at that passage with Nicodemus, where he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how is that supposed to happen? And Jesus replies, like, it's of the Spirit. You don't understand it because you're not of the Spirit. But, but the Spirit does something that, that fundamentally transforms you at the time of your salvation into a spiritual, eternal being that God considers my son, my daughter, my friend. This will give us peace and purpose in our life. Even when difficulty comes. And we know that there will be difficulties. Jesus knew everything that was about to face him. And then he also tells us what we're to face. In Matthew chapter 24, you're going to hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Hand you over to be persecuted. Uh, They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Luke chapter 21 puts it this way. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it's necessary that these things take place first. But the end won't come right away. And so Jesus is saying, like, he knew the difficulties that he was about to face. He had a sense of peace and purpose even knowing that because he knew what would then happen after that. The the, the reason for his accomplishing the work on the cross. We are told that there's going to be difficulty within this life. But then we're also told in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sort? Do Do you see this list? This list is almost the same list as what Jesus said in Matthew 24. There's going to be wars. There's going to be pestilences. There's going to be persecution. There'll be famine. There'll be swords. And Romans starts out, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger of sword, as it is written, because of you are being put to death all day long, were counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This gives us the peace. Difficulties will come. These difficulties won't shake you. These difficulties cannot separate you from Jesus Christ. In fact, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to hold on to these verses. We need to hold on to these truths to give us the same peace and sense of purpose that Jesus had facing the cross. We're told in Romans chapter 8, the same chapter we just read out of, that our present sufferings 
will not compare. Uh, Paul, I consider the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Again, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross. Here's this difficult thing to go. I'm going to, to endure through this because of what it's going to accomplish. Because God's going to be glorified in the reconciliation of mankind. Paul's saying the same thing for us. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us in Jesus Christ. It's going to pale in comparison. And so we go through this recognizing that there is a purpose into this and we're trusting God in these things. But not only that, it's not just saying that there's going to be difficulties, but it's saying that we have care and comfort from our great shepherd and God who loves us in all of this. In Isaiah chapter 53, again the prophecy about the Messiah, uh, it says he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities or our sin. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. In other words, all the things that, that we would have deserved because of sin and rebellion to God, Jesus willingly took upon himself. Uh, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our sin. Uh, the punishment for our peace, he took the punishment so that we would have peace. And through all of this, we're healed by his wounds, uh, is the prophecy. Matthew chapter 8, as Jesus is walking the earth, he, when evening came, uh, they brought many to him who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a, word, with a word and healed all who were sick, so that was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So even though there is difficulty in life, the promise of God is that we're not walking through that difficulty alone. That we're not walking through that difficulty as, as ships without an anchor or sails in a stormy sea. But, but rather we have the God who said to the storm in the sea, be still. And the wind and the waves calmed. The, the one that cast out demons and healed the sick in order to fulfill the prophecy that says... We have peace and we are healed by his wounds. We're told in Ephesians that we're seated with him right now in heavenly realms. That, that we are his inheritance. That he considers us his special possession. Uh, that we are his uh, masterpiece in the good works that he's prepared for us to do. Like, like all of these things are, are saying how precious we are to him, how much he cares for us, and, and how much he's going to help us as we go through this life, even though there's an enemy out there who's trying to oppose all of this. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. To stray into temptation. But then... The Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you will be able to bear it. Like all of these things are showing his provision for us as we go through this life. 
We can approach the throne boldly in Hebrews chapter 4. It says we have a high priest, or we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So let's approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's this whole thing where, where Jesus who walked on this earth, even though people didn't recognize him, the Garden of Gethsemane, people are coming up to arrest him. They're say, he says, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. I'm he. They fall on the ground because of the power of his words, the power that spoke all things into existence, the power that would be willingly on the cross in order to sacrifice for us to be reconciled with him, the one that prophesied everything is going to to happen, but yet here is all of the help and the power within that. In fact, within Ephesians uh, chapter 1, it says that the power that was at work as Jesus was raised out of the grave is now at work within our lives, changing us, transforming us, and helping us. This God who spoke all things into existence says that we can approach him boldly in our time of need to find help. In, in our prayers, is that how we go to him? Or is it, God, I need help with this. This feels like it's too much. And then we try and do it on our own strength. God, this situation is terrible. I don't know what to do. You need to do something. And, and I'm using those as examples because they're examples of prayers that I fall into sometimes when I'm discouraged. Instead of this whole idea of, like, in prayer, we're approaching the throne room boldly of this Jesus who is love and grace and mercy and power. And saying to him, I need your help. You spoke all things into existence. What are my small problems compared to your ability to help? To approach with that attitude is what it's saying here. That, that we have the right to do because we're adopted as children. It's not, again, these aspects of little acolytes that are going up to a deity and, and offering sacrifices and saying, we hope you like us. Maybe you'll do something for us. But it's standing on the truth of all these passages that says... He loves us to the point that he willingly sacrificed himself, his son, for us. In order to restore us, in order to help us. It should change the way that we approach this. And the way that we approach this it really changes the way that we see our whole lives. Jesus, again, was able to head towards the cross knowing everything that was going to happen to him. Because he had peace in it and a purpose to it. He knew what would happen, but he also knew why it was happening and what would accomplish through that. In Scripture, we've been given the exact same thing. We're going to go through difficulties, but these difficulties can't separate us from Jesus. There's going to be a devil out there who's trying to steer us the wrong direction and tempt us, but yet, guess what? There is no temptation that's common to you except what's common to man, and there's a way of escape through this. Oh, but it feels really hard. Approach the throne boldly, the throne of grace. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and he's going to help you in this situation. 
We're promised to, to, to be given a helper. Luke chapter 24, you are my witnesses of these things. Jesus was saying, look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. Talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, when he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the, farmers, the, the father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So again, the truth of this is was not we're, only were we rebels to God, that in his love he brought us out of that, redeemed us, made us his children, made us his inheritance, seated us with him in heavenly realms, redeemed us, uh, death is defeated, sin is broken, there are no chains that hold us. Not only that, he says that we can go to him in any time that we need help, but then he's also saying this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit it is now going to be within you so that every step you take, you're not alone, but you're empowered from on high in all of eternity to face whatever it is that you face. It's with this Spirit that we endure. Philippians 1 says, I'm sure of this, he who started a good work will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. Done completely by the Spirit. And as we go through this, and we endure in this world that still has difficulties, we still stand on more promises. Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This is what's coming. And the purpose in our life is to reflect him until the day that this comes. So that others can join us. Others are able to have what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that there's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is different from that of the earthly ones. There's a splendor of the sun and another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in a natural body, raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. And, and so what, what it's saying here, and you have to kind of have this, this context about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and the splendor of, earthly he, of heavenly bodies being different than that of earthly ones. Keep in the context here uh, of the Greek-Roman culture of that time and the games that they would have and their ideal sense uh, of a body and how people would be going for that and, and they would glorify they're athletes and put wreaths on their heads. And, and so there is an aspect of, of splendor within the human body. God's designed it, right? David says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I, I think it's incredible that I can use a fork sometimes, right? Like, like there's four pointy things on the end of a metal stick, and, and yet I can take that fork and, and pick up a sesame seed and eat with it or stab it into a steak. Right? The, the, the things that we can do 
with our hands, the dexterity. I'm a little hungry, so food's on my mind here. <laughs> right? But this building built with hands and hammers and nails. And, and I've seen sculptures that, that are so delicate and realistic that it's incredibly what hands are capable of doing, what our, what our bodies are. And what this is saying is like, if we are looking at the splendor of our earthly body, it's nothing in comparison to what we're promised in a resurrection body, a spiritual body. We're sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. Meaning that whatever physical difficulties or illnesses we have in this life, disabilities, all of these things are simply temporary. And God promises they're all gone. And the bodies that we have now will fall and fade as he promises new bodies in order to spend eternity with him worshiping and enjoying his creation in that. These are promises that we can hold on to regardless of any physical difficulty that we have in this life. His love for us, he describes in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the word or washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but rather holy and blameless. I, I love weddings because of this verse. Like, like all of the preparation that the bride goes through on the day of the wedding. You know, all that secret stuff that I wasn't allowed to know of, you know, um, as I sat there and played some video games and just kind of had my tux on and like, but, but yet there's this whole regimen thing that happens with brides as, as they're kind of prepared. And, and again, the, the whole thing is, I, I love doing weddings because I'm, I'm like standing up here and the groom's like right next to me, um, usually kind of sweaty and nervous. And, and I'm making sure that they have some tissues or something and just kind of doing a little bit of a joke. But what is everybody waiting for? The bride who's been prepared. There's this aspect of I mean, we've had weddings within this room and we're sitting here and then the music starts. And, and I look over at the groom and, and they're just kind of, Jesse Veek was over here just kind of like, Amy's coming through that door. And then she comes and, and the joy and tears welling up and all of this emotion and all of this anticipation and, and all of the joy and all of the beauty and, and all of these things. This is what God is saying is how he sees us as the church. And that the difficulties that we're going through and the times that we're facing and all of his promise to help us through all of that is the preparation of the bride, making us ready for that day. There's a purpose in all that we go through. Romans 8 tells us that he'll work out all things for the good of those who love him. All of these things can be used to prepare us, but we're only able to receive that in joy and eagerness and anticipation if we hold on to these promises. Because if we don't, and we only focus on difficulties, it's easy then to fall into complaining, bitterness, resentment, and complaining. 
Maybe I said complaining twice because you start complaining and you complain a lot. But what he's doing is grooming us as a bride, preparing us, getting ready and anticipating. His promise is that all of this is going to result in him standing there waiting for us. We're waiting for him. That's why I love this illustration because even though the groom's sitting here waiting for the bride, what is the, the bride waiting for? Waiting for the groom. There's a sense of anticipation on, on both sides of this and, and the Holy Spirit has inspired us to understand that this wedding picture of, of loving the wives as Christ loved the church this splendor without spot or wrinkle, but being holy and blameless. Christ is working, the Holy Spirit is working within us through his death on the cross and the continued work within us in this preparation for a celebration of marriage between us and him. It gives us a peace and a purpose if we hold on to this truth regardless of what comes. This celebration to take place, Matthew chapter 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup and after giving thanks, gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That day of celebration is coming. The day of celebration has happened with Jesus at the cross. I, I love the passage that we're looking at this morning in John. Again, because it says, knowing everything that was about to happen, he said, I am he. I'm willing to go through this. Scripture tells us everything that's going to happen. It also tells us all the ways that God has prepared us for that, has provided for that, will carry us through that, has promised us through this that we will be transformed into something that we can't even comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what the Lord has prepared for those who love him and follow him. This is what we hold on to. And if we do this, if we focus on these things, if this establishes our identity, if, if we feel shaken in the world but we turn back to this, then we can have that same sense of peace and purpose that Christ had as he faced the cross, as we face our jobs, our families, difficulties, persecutions. We can all do it with joy. Because of what's set before us in his promises. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. I thank you for the example that you set before us. That even knowing everything that would happen, you still with joy, with joy endured the cross and the shame. Because of what would be accomplished. And so Lord, I pray that we, you would help us by your spirit to have that same trust and confidence in you. That you have these promises, that you have 
established by your word and by your power. The same word that people fell to the ground on has been applied into our lives and plans and purposes and promises that you will carry us, that you will guard us, that you will love us, that you care for us. I pray that you help us to receive that truly and to walk according to these promises and not according to our fears, our doubts, or even the way that we judge ourselves. Lord, I pray that these words from your scripture would sink deep and be the root within us, the wellspring of life that wells up to joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.